is The Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Welcome back to another hour of Thought Revolution Radio. You picked a juicy show to tune into. It's me, French Sean Prue here. Later on in the hour, we're going to meet Chong Kim, an activist who has spent the last 20 years working to put an end to sexual exploitation and human trafficking, a passion that emerged from her experience surviving child rape and human trafficking as a young adult. And uh, also ahead of the show, we know COVID-19 overwhelmingly affects marginalized communities. Find out what the man behind a study of its effects on the LGBTQ community has learned after studying 3,000 participants. But up first, we're talking some transformation. As many of you who listen regularly know, I've been working with transformational coach Allison Crossway to jumpstart my life after feeling for too long that it had grown stagnant. I don't think I can imagine anyone listening who doesn't want to in some way transform their lives for the better. So we're doing this big share here on the show once a month. The journey so far, it's been about two and a half months, has involved breathwork, which is a very intense experience, and the use of psychedelics, aka magic mushrooms, um, in therapeutic doses to clear out negativity, uh, unblock, move old stored pain around and out. And the effects of this in my life have been very noticeable. Energy attracts energy, as you know. And when you're operating from a place of cleared out or renewed, you attract better, more cleared out and renewed energy. And this is what I'm finding is happening for me now. So next up in the Alison Crothwaite <laughs> regime, I'm participating in an experience called the Wim Wilhoff Method, I'll be taught breathing techniques that can help alkalize my body so that I can then plunge into ice cold Lake Ontario. <laughs> you might have seen this on Netflix on Gwyneth Paltrow's, Paltrow's group lab series. They devoted an entire episode to it. Keep coming back to the Sean Prue show for more on that because uh, we're going to record that experience when it begins next week. Uh, but And also, if you're wanting to listen to some past episodes of Allison and I, you can hear them on SiriusXM On Demand uh, anytime or go to SeanPrew.com and click on podcasts to hear them there. But now meet the woman who's got me doing all these things that some would call insane. Allison Crossway's on the show. Hi. How are Hi. you? <laughs> nice to have you on. It's great to be here. So let's start. Define transformation. What is that? Such a good question. It's moving into something new. And we want to transform why. And you heard me say in the intro, I don't think that there's anyone who doesn't want to upgrade, to change, to develop, to grow, to reach uh, in their lives. I think that's something we all share in, in the human experience is the desire for betterment. Why, why, why is that? Well, I believe that we're here to grow. And creativity, and we've talked about the connection between sexual energy and the work that we're doing, creativity, generativity, sexuality, this is our reason for being here. This is yes. what keeps the species going. And it comes out in all these ways. And all we want to do is grow and create. We want to expand, grow, create, find new possibilities. It's what we love to do. And what makes us feel the way I was feeling um, before we met and decided to work together, that feeling of malaise or that feeling of stagnancy, what creates that in our lives and how do we get there if our purpose is to grow? Right. Such a good question. So we're born, I have a puppy right now and I'm watching it. We're born like exuberant and we're raised by people who are a little less exuberant. Uh, because they're adults <laughs> right. and we get all this conditioning put on us like this is the way you should do things this is the way you shouldn't do things and bit by bit by bit we we um tamp down our life force and 
that can kind of reach ahead when we have a big loss or we're not doing anything new for a while and we're midlife and we kind of have all the things everyone told us we should want, but we're like, wait a minute, I'm not exuberant anymore. I was going to say, we do the things that people tell us we should do. We have the family, we have the house, we have the job, we create a feathered nest. And sometimes we create our, we back ourselves into a level of being comfortable. And that um, sounds like a very tempting thing to have things predictable, to have things assured, to have things uh, rolling out in a way that uh, doesn't challenge us too much. But we, it is a corner that we back ourselves into isn't it? Because then all of a sudden you can't grow and you can't change and you're defeating your purpose for being here. That's right. And it's not natural. Like the natural world is always changing. So our desire to make things never change works against truth and reality. So it doesn't actually in the end feel good or serve us. And so you um, were in a position where you had to transform your life um before tell us about that i know that we both have a common background having been years in finance together is that where you got yourself feeling stuck for sure i i have a lot of energy and in my 20s i put it into stock trading and i spent 15 years as a trader and researcher in capital markets very exciting very stressful and very conditioned um i had to be a certain way I had to get certain things done and all my feelings, my creativity, my wildness, they were like damp and down and I was selling my soul for a very good income and it was a bad trade. Um, I can so relate to that because I'm a creative person too and I was only in finance eight years, half the amount of time you were there. But when I was in there, towards the end, I realized I have not done one creative thing in eight years because oh. you're chasing the dollar, you're chasing the trade, you're chasing the deal, you're chasing the negotiation, you're chasing the climbing up the ladder, you're, you're chasing pleasing the boss, um, yeah. you're chasing all these sorts of things. And, and for me, I, I literally realized like I haven't written a sentence that has creativity in it. I haven't done one, one thing. And you say we're all creative some people listening to this might say, I'm not creative. What do you say to them? Oh, I say creativity looks so many different ways. Creativity can be how you think and it can be very analytical. We're all creative because we're all alive. We're all um, generative. If you have a sex drive, you're creative. If you like to walk in nature, you're creative. Everything's creative. And so for you, when did you realize it's time for you to get back and get creative? And how did your transformation unfold? You know, it's taken a long time. It's taken a long time. And 2020 has really prompted me along. I was very stressed out on Wall Street. And I found a therapist. And I got a long way with her such that I became a therapist myself. And that... Um, that got me a long way towards being able to talk about my feelings, accept myself, and still some big losses came in and I was not handling it well. And so I started to search out other healing modalities further into other cultures, into other uh, more body and spirit centered modalities, and I started to crack and come into my own. And so there's an amount of, um, of, of courage or bravery in the doing of that, yes. because I think it's important to, to highlight to people that transformation isn't comfortable. What you're, where you're at, if you feel like you need to transform, is probably quite comfortable. And, and speaking of my own experience, I just was feeling really comfortable. And, and that to me is, is a flat line. It never has any joy or anticipation of, in the day of it. And you want uncertainty and, and um, vulnerability in the day to feel those things that make you feel alive. And I wasn't feeling that anymore. Um, what was the most challenging thing in your transformation thus far? Wow. I mean... The most challenging thing has been to take a stand for myself, even when that means not being the person that I was raised to be, that other people expect me to be. And I think we can do that with love, 
but it's always challenging to see relationships change, love relationships, family relationships, friends, to, to just let them change because otherwise I will die. I think that's, I think that's one of the, the biggest things um, that people face and will face if you're listening to us thinking, yeah, transformation is something that I, I need to start thinking about doing is people like you where they are, where you are. They like the predictability of you. They like you just as they know you to be. And you, you can face um, the truth about a lot of the relationships in your life when you transform because some people won't stick around for it. Some people that you think should support you will not support you. Did you run into this sort of thing when you were starting to transform? Oh, absolutely. A thousand yeah, percent. Painful. My relationships have changed. But I will say this. Some people will also surprise you. And some people have been waiting for us to change and are really happy. Yeah. So it's important that we recognize that we don't know how people will respond. And sometimes people are very upset at first and they don't respond well. And then over time they come to see things. We're all on a journey. We're all always changing. And some people are waiting for you to transform that haven't even met you yet. That's because right. it's, it's then when you are transformed that you align and rendezvous with the next group of people who are supposed to lift you up, carry you further, be part of your journey somehow. Thousand percent. That's so beautiful and true. People are listening to this right now and some are going, yeah, he's got a point here about transformation. They're making some sense about this and what, what, what can I do to transform myself? What's the, what's the first thing you would say to a stranger who's listening to this right now about what to do? Go to alisoncrothwaite.com. <laughs> <laughs> well, please feel free. Yeah. Um, you can also, you can do a little mini self-assessment. Like where is your malaise showing up? Is it low physical energy? Then go see a naturopathic doctor and start to work on that. Are you not able to express sadness or rage? Go start working with a therapist and start working on that. Are you feeling really disconnected from spirituality? Go see someone who can help you do that. Like just take a little mini assessment and take the next step towards getting yourself in balance. One of the things that I've um, talked to people about who want to find out, um, not, not, not to transform, but often the question is, um, I don't know what I want to do next. And I th always think that we're looking for a feeling, mm -hmm. right? And so what are the things that you used to do that caused you the feelings? Like when I was leaving finance, I mislabeled that what I wanted to do is become an actor. And although I have done and did do um, acting after I left finance, what I realized much later was that um, when I ever did acting, the whole process of rehearsing, of getting the part, of performing, of audience interaction and feeling gratification um, brought me joy. And so what I was looking for really when I left finance was, was to feel joy. And so therefore, I try and line up all the times with the things that bring me joy, right? And, and so now what you're helping me do is find the... A place of alignment energetically where the things that bring me joy can match up to me again through all of the work that we've been doing. Am I, cor am I correct? Yes. <laughs> we tend to focus on the external, but when we do that, we're like chasing, we're almost needy in a sense. But when we focus on the internal and we raise our energy, our joy, our life force energy, then all the externals just overflow. They cannot help but overflow. Yeah, because it's not going out and buying the car or buying the new dress or buy or, or having the meal or having the sex or whatever that is going to permanently fill you up. Those are small hits along the way. But there's a difference between that and when you align up and you just start attracting things like that. Um, and for that, at that point, you you don't you don't even care anymore <laughs> because you've got the internal hits going so hard. Yes. Yes, and for me, um, a lot of the things that I've been attracting have been um, what I would call abundance, abundance of ideas and abundance of opportunities have come my way um, and people coming into my life. So that's been the, um, 
the externals that I couldn't possibly find just by going out and looking. You had to change your your vibration. Exactly. It should all be really easy. Yes. That's the hallmark of when you're in flow. Uh, I just got the note from my producer that we're now officially out of time. Go to okay. alisoncrosswhite.com for more information. You can hear uh, the work that we've been doing on SiriusXM on demand anytime, or go to shampoo.com where we've got a whole bunch of stuff posted up there as well. Allison, thank you so much um, for this crazy journey that you're taking me on. And uh, thanks for sharing a bit about what transformation is today. It's a pleasure, Sean. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Still to come, we talk to a survivor of human trafficking about her passion for ending it. And next up, dive into the results of a study about how COVID-19 is affecting the LGBT community. We've got the Sean Prue Show here on SiriusXM, Canada Talks Channel 167, and we're glad you're here. The Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Welcome back. You've got the Sean Prue Show here on Sirius XM Canada Talks, Channel 167. Glad you're with us. Just been talking transformation with my coach, Allison Crosswaite. If you have missed that, check it out on demand on the Sirius XM app, or you can always go to SeanPrue.com where we podcast every episode there. We're going to meet in just a little while a survivor of child rape and human trafficking. And she shares her remarkable story with us. It's very inspiring. But first, we know COVID-19 has affected marginalized communities to a greater extent than it has the mainstream. But until recently, there's been little intel on the pandemic's effect on the lives of LGBTQ people. Dr. Nathan Lachowski joins us now. He's the Associate Professor at the University of Victoria School of Public Health and Social Policy and Research Director at the Vancouver-based nonprofit community-based research center. Nathan, I have to tell you, I was so surprised that such a study would come to be because I don't think I've ever heard too much about LGBTQ people being counted in the first place. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think that, um, I'm definitely pleasantly surprised we've been able to get these resources. Um, if you're gonna ask someone from the community, I know um, from just my time going through that we really haven't known a lot about folks in our communities, despite the fact that what evidence we do have generally points to a lot of difference. Yeah, and, and I think um, the, the, what the problem with that, obviously, is that when you're not counted, your stories aren't counted and told. And so it's my understanding a million dollars was funded uh, to do this study. Yeah, we've actually had um, great success in the last um, few months in terms of research on uh, and with LGBTQ2 communities. Um, there's two separate projects that have been funded recently, one specifically focusing on COVID, which was $660,000 from the Canadian Immunity Task Force. And then a second project focusing on chronic health uh, within our community. And that was a million dollars from the Public Health Agency of Canada. So, um, and so I think this really reflects the changing like landscape of, of the fact that if we want to address health inequities, we need to actually start working with those communities that are experiencing them. And so, you know, lots of different types of people listen to this show. Someone's listening and they don't understand how COVID could affect the LGBTQ2 uh, community. Tell us a little bit about uh, what, how that is so. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly um, give you our best hypotheses as of now. But I mean, part of what we're trying to understand with these large studies is really to untangle what those key reasons are largely so that we can think about ways in which to better address them so that we don't see the inequities continue. Um, I mean, what we do know about LGBTQ folks is that um, they have tighter social networks. Do you know what I mean? Oftentimes as a result of discrimination and stigma, perhaps um, during ejection from their uh, birth families, um, that during, they have these tight social networks and doing tighter social networks can mean that uh, infections can spread more quickly between them. We also know that LGBTQ folks generally have a different um, kind of uh, work experience or the types of jobs that people are doing that might put them at greater risk of exposure, whether that be through kind of hospitality or whether that be through the need to use public transportation to get to work. Um, so these kinds of things are, um, are part of the understanding the COVID uh, infection epidemic, but we're also really interested in what are some of those secondary impacts of this epidemic? What does it mean to be put um, into isolation? And, 
Um, generally, you're someone that is being forced back into a home that may not be particularly supportive of your gender identity or expression or your sexual orientation. And then public health recommendation is really exposing you to more potential violence. And it's my understanding too, from other studies I've read that have got nothing to do with what you're working on, that uh, mental health um, is something that uh, this community is at higher risk for having issues with than the mainstream. So right off the bat, you've got more, if I'm correct, a predisposed um, situation when people are going back into isolation um, in general. They could be with totally supportive families um, and friends or networks, but um, a lot of the, the community are predisposed to mental health issues. Am I right there? Yeah, you're absolutely on, yeah. on the ball there. I mean, I think, um, and this is kind of my piece around, there's not one narrative from our communities. I mean, we're a diverse group of people across the entire country, across the entire world. And I mean, everyone's gonna have a bit of a different experience, but those underlying issues like mental health, um, like some chronic health stressors are going to mean that even in this epidemic, things are likely to only be worse. And I think that's part of it is like, this inequities aren't starting with COVID. COVID is really just um, highlighting them or exacerbating them for communities. As COVID has in so many ways uh, exactly. revealed a lot of underbellies and, and positives um, in our society. I, I, um, I wonder what has surprised you thus far along this journey you're on. I think to me, um, it's been a little bit about where you started the conversation, Sean, in terms of just being surprised that something like this is happening. I think people are just so used to in the community being forgotten, being erased, um, never being allowed to kind of share or express their, their, their diversity in terms of sexual orientation and gender. And a lot of really pleasant surprises from the community about like, I'm really glad this is funded and I'm really excited to share my story. Um, and I think that's really what we're trying to do here is to take a whole bunch of stories and put numbers to that so that the policymakers and the decision makers can actually direct and change services so that they are better. Um, and I think, I mean, for me, one of the big surprises has been um, just some of the unique ways in which this has played out. So when I think about the COVID epidemic and, and gender affirming care or surgeries being deemed as non-essential, um, during the experience of trans folks in terms of having to kind of manage the, the fact that the state is saying that their care and what they need is non-essential. Yes. Um, and having during, something that they've built towards and expected for so long be canceled during or postponed and postponed again. Um, during there's still threats of postponing surgeries in some parts of the country based on the second wave now. So do you just to cut in and use the very example you're using, do you actually think that uh, by revealing this information in a broad way through a study like this to policymakers, that this could actually create change in as much as not um, deeming these um, uh, surgeries non-essential because I think about all of the people who had cancer surgeries scheduled and those all went by the wayside um, and I just wonder is is it possible to even best that and and move um, the surgeries for trans people up the ladder that that that, that much yeah, I mean, for me as a researcher, I'm always cautious about overpromising what we can do. And we're not the decision makers, right? No. We're the kind of story carriers. And I think for me, part of this is thinking about, it's not necessarily a, would be a shift to a whole entire blanket statement of all trans uh, during affirming care and surgeries are now essential. But it, it might be a more nuanced approach to say, can we do some mental health assessment and some situational assessment to say who may need to be prioritized in terms of their care? Um, and really thinking through that kind of piece. It may also be requiring a kind of different thought through if these folks are having their surgeries canceled, what is some alternative ways in which these people can be supported? Right. Right. And I think that kind of piece is, uh, I mean, of course, in the first response, everyone was just trying to manage. Um, but now that we've been managing this for several months and Junin, it's going to be several months more, um, I think part of this is really thinking much more intelligently about how we support each other. Take away even COVID um, from this study that you're doing, which obviously is because of COVID, but just to, to remove that for a minute, because the study is so on the leading edge and is a type of first, um, it's going to reveal information, I would imagine, to the mainstream and to policy de decision makers um, about our community that that was always there um, that they never even realized before because they've never asked us or talked to us before. So even without the COVID impact, there must be things that are being revealed um, that are going to help understanding in the broadest sense for the longest term. Do yeah, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that this is kind of... Um maybe the silver lining is a, is a potential term I could use for it. But I mean, I think that 
we've had many epidemics in our communities before from HIV to uh, during the overdose epidemics, during many things have intersected with, with queer and trans folks. And I mean, this COVID epidemic is a lot more in the, the public's eye. Uh, and it's the topical conversation right now when I think um, the environment has changed in terms of our existence as queer and trans people. Mm. Um, and so I do think that there's some long-term impact here. I mean, when I look at some of the international data, I mean, countries directly to the south of us have better data on sexual minority and trans folks than we Which do Which is surprising. Which is very surprising. And I think we like to live in our Canadian bubble and think that things are really progressive and really advanced here. But um, there's a lot of work for us to do to catch up on where the international stage is around this. And part of it is because of the need for it. It's not just a, a political thing. This is the fact that if we're really interested in making sure that we direct our health resources and our services and supports to the people who need the most, um, which I think is the basic measure of the goodness in a society, um, then we need these kinds of data to inform those decisions. What do you know now that you didn't know at the top of this project? Oof. I know that, um, I mean, for me, working on this kind of stuff is what gets me out of bed in the morning. I think a lot about the challenge that COVID has been in terms of um, feeling lethargic, feeling demotivated, wondering what's my place in the world. And I feel really grateful to work with an amazing team of people who are all really passionate about this and how we bring ourselves and our own lives to this work in addition to our academic training. Uh, I think really speaks to, um, to me, I think, what is amazing community-based research. Uh, so. We, uh, what has surprised you about the LGBTQ community or what do you know that, uh, that you didn't before? I don't know that I would say that it's a surprise per se, but I'm always love to be reminded of how fierce people are. And I think that we have such an amazing diverse community that is so oriented towards action and change. Uh, when I think about some of the synergies between uh, anti-Black racism and anti-Indigenous racism work and LGBTQ rights, um, I think that this is this perfect example where COVID and you were talking about this, Sean, in terms of other communities that have been affected, where our work can also lift up those voices in that work. Um, and I think that that, um, that opportunity for uh, collaboration and that opportunity for solidarity, I think is, uh, is just so encouraging. And I feel really optimistic about um, our chance to, to be a part of the revolutions that are taking place. Any obstacles um, in your path with this? I mean, I think that having it not really been done before is always a bit of an obstacle because right. we're really coming up with everything as we go. Um, I think it's definitely also uh, not an obstacle, but a challenge that we're trying to really meet head on uh, in terms of understanding that diversity of our community. And I, I've said that a few times, but when I think about that, that's thinking about generations across many different decades of what it meant to be a queer and trans person, where we wouldn't even have used the words queer and trans. No. It's during differences across um, during ethno-racial identity and culture. During, and so for our, our COVID study, we've appointed 21 community advisors from across the country that represent these kind of diverse intersections and lived experience. And we're really trying to center those voices and that feedback in our decision-making process. And I think that's what makes us different as a study than a lot of others is because we really are trying to make this as community oriented and grounded as possible. You, you say this uh, is making you hop out of bed in the morning, excited for the day. What's your greatest hope at the end of it all for this survey? This I study? think that the general Canadian understands the value of doing this work and doing that there's, doing support for it to continue um, because of the benefits that arose from it. I think to me, that's the, the broader piece. Of course, Jun and I hope that this will lead to better management of during future waves of the COVID epidemic, and a better understanding of how that impacted Jun um, folks across Canada generally. Um, but to me, I think the longevity in terms of the relationship between our communities and broader society uh, is something that would be a real, uh, real win for me. Dr. Nathan Olchowski, I wish you the best of luck with this. It's just got me jazzed. <laughs> That's awesome to hear, Sean. Thanks. Absolutely. We'll let you know when we launch. And I mean, if folks are interested in learning more, they should visit cbrc.net, um, which will have all the information about the study once we launch later this year. Well, then please come back and share us uh, with us uh, all the things that you've learned along the way, would you? Gladly. Always happy to mix up an invite. All right. Great. Thanks for coming on the show. In just a minute, we're going to take a break right now. We're going to meet in just a minute. John Kim, an activist who has spent the last 20 years working to put an end to sexual exploitation and human trafficking, a passion that emerged from her experience surviving child rape and human trafficking as a young adult. You've got the Sean Prue Show here on SiriusXM Canada Talks, Channel 167. I'm glad you're here.
Welcome back to the Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Here's Sean Prue. Welcome back. You've got the Sean Prue Show on Sirius XM Canada Talks, Channel 167. So glad that you're with us. I want to welcome our special guest to the show right now. Chong Kim is a Korean American author of the book Broken Silence, an activist and renowned speaker who has spent close to two decades working to end sexual exploitation and human trafficking. Her passion for advocacy and empowerment grew from her firsthand experiences as a survivor of rape as a child and being trafficked, trafficked rather as a young adult. In her book, Broken Silence, Chong Kim breaks the silence that has muzzled generations of cultural oppression and unites the invisible gag that has muted the voices of Asian Americans for centuries. Broken Silence is the unbridled testimony of one person's account of cover-ups, racism, sexual abuse, and human trafficking. Welcome to the show, Chong. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. So at what point in your journey did you decide a book was something that you needed to write? Actually, um, when the movie Eden came out back in 2012, 2013, um, Colin Plank was the producer for the film. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a book out at the time. So someone asked, uh, when is Chong's book coming out? And he said, next year. And I was like, what? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Like, hold on, hold on. I haven't even started writing yet. And he's like, well, get to work. And he kind of gave me a slight punch in the arm. And I was like, Oh, you, but then I started realizing that, um, cause I would start getting a lot of calls and other people saying, this is what I went through. How did you do it? And so then I thought, you know, I do need to write about this. And, um, and then I would get people having wrong ideas, um, because having to describe what it's like being a survivor is very tough. Of course. And it takes a long time to explain. And not every survivor deals with trauma the same way. And so that's when I started writing. But it took me, um, it started in 2013 all the way through 2017 is when I finally finished the book. So you have a responsibility to yourself to tell your story, but you must have felt a responsibility to tell the story of other survivors while at the same time making sure that you weren't necessarily assuming to tell their story. How challenging was that? It was very challenging. Um, I actually got my inspiration from um, Maya Angelou's book. Now I know how the cage bird sings. Yes. And I found out, I did some research and I found out that she actually had her memoir as an autobiographical novel meaning that you can add a pen name so you don't get sued for verbatim and things like that. But you can be able to still tell your story, but in different names. And so that's what I did for legality reasons. And so when you read the book, of course, my name is Chong Kim, but then you find out the character's name, her name is Song, you know? And um, so I did that for that reason. And then the other part is I wanted to... I've always had a fighting spirit when I when I was a little girl. When someone says you can't do that, I'm the type of person that says, "Watch me! I'm going to rise above." Even when everyone was laughing at me, and so um, and I wanted to write an inspirational book. At the same time, I wanted it to be gritty. I didn't want to hide anything. And so during that time, I had um, limited income. <laughs> And as my first book, and so the only type of editors that would help me edit the book and help me get it polished were Christian writers. So there was Uh a lot of stuff that got taken out that I was not happy with. And so they're like, no, Chong, you're not gay anymore. You're not bi. You're straight. God saved you. And I was like, yes, I may believe in God, but I am who I am. And so, um, but I am working on coming out with another book called Unattained. And this talks about the real raw me that I want people to know. This will actually be considered a second edition. Okay. So it won't be a rewrite from the first, but it'll be kind of like a to be continued and be able to really come out and say, you know what, this is some things I want to share that I couldn't share in the first book, you know, because of publicity reasons during that time, because even then everything went through Eden And so I had to make sure, you know, was it, um, 
it's kind of like, was it um, appropriate enough during that era to share certain things? Now we're talking about Epstein, Weinstein, all these other people. So I'm like, you know what? It's time. I'm going to start sharing everything. Yes. It's time. (laughs) You're a survivor of rape as a child. You were raped and uh, being trafficked as a young adult. I want to like give you the floor now and take us back and share as you wish your story. What happened to you? I was three years old and um, it was actually my mom's best friend's husband that raped me. He was actually one of the things I want to people to understand. And this is a part that's very um, challenging for me. He had developmental disability. And so that became, became a trigger for me. So whenever I was growing up and I would see someone that was disabled or had mental challenge, I automatically thought they were my babysitter. I automatically thought every one of them were bad or horrible. But through the universe, um, when I was eight years old, I ended up having to stay in a handicap home. And that wasn't written in the book, but one of the things I learned is that not all disabled person are predators. So it opened my eyes to see that my babysitter was different but having to go through that, it also distorted my sensation for touch, sex, love. It distorted all of that because I didn't know what was love and what was healthy love. Um, then on top of that, being sexually abused ongoing throughout my whole life. By the same I was person? Catholic. No, by multiple different men. I grew up Catholic. My father was an alcoholic and he was also a gambler. And so he would bring men over to our house they would take turns sexually abusing me from fondling me. Then I was sexually abused at school. I was sexually abused by students. I mean, it was just, it was ongoing. And so by the time I was 18, and the thing was being a teenager, I didn't sleep with anyone by choice, I mean. And so I grew up with this this Catholic, um, I wanted to be the Catholic good girl. I wanted to make my parents proud. And so by the time I was 18 or 19 years old, I fell in love with a guy that I knew in high school. We fell in love, but then I, I was raped at the age of 19. By and he the boy? Said, You're not a... No, I was raped actually by a cab driver. I went to a nightclub with a friend and I let her take my car and I took a cab back to the uh, hotel, but I never made it to the hotel. And so when I was raped by the cab driver, the boy that I fell in love with, this is before my trafficking, he said, you're not a virgin anymore. I don't want you. And so all of that did something to me to where I started to feel like, you know, what's the use of trying to be good when all these bad things happen? So I'm, so I kind of had this attitude that says, well, F you, I'm done with being the good Catholic girl. Now I'm going to wreak havoc on everybody. And so I became a strip dancer. I started becoming promiscuous. I started breaking hearts. I just didn't care anymore. And then shortly after, I met this guy named Keith who was dressed up in a Marine uniform. And I thought he was my boyfriend. And he ended up being the one to traffic me. And so when I was being trafficked, I thought the universe was, um, I thought the universe was punishing me. So I want, that to, God was punching me. I want to interject with um, a request that you explain to the audience what trafficking is. When you say this okay. man in the Marines outfit began to traffic you, what does that mean? He was a recruiter. And what a recruiter does is they groom women or young girls. They'll say, hey, I like you. I want to date you. They start dating these girls, gaining their trust. And then once they gain their trust, they start to sell them into prostitution, labor trafficking. Sometimes they'll even use them for organ trafficking. I mean, that's basically the um, human trafficking for people who don't know is basically the selling of any human being, whether it's a body part, whether it's your genitalia, or whether it's just slave work. But the thing is, these traffickers profit off of you and you don't get paid for any of it. 
and that's why it's called human trafficking. How widespread? How widespread would you say it is um, in the U.S., for example? In the U.S., I think there's about 30 million, and then globally, the United States is ranked number two globally, and I think number one was it used to be like Amsterdam and Netherlands, and um, I'm not sure what is number one now. So but, um, it's it's pretty prevalent. So can you describe to us the experience of being trafficked when you, did you realize you were being trafficked? How did that unfold or dovetail with your life? Yeah. Well, this happened in the nineties. So human trafficking, the terminology didn't even exist until later in the 2000. And so I actually thought I was forced into prostitution. And so after a while, but even though I was 19 years old at the time, I was sold as a Japanese 13-year-old little girl. And so me being four foot 11 at the time and being under 100 pounds and 19, especially a lot of the adult men that wanted these young little Asian girls, they couldn't tell the difference. And all I had to do is speak broken English to them. But here's the, the, the strangest dichotomy. When I was being trafficked and I was being known as a child slave, the men that bought me, they were brutal. They were violent. They would beat me. They would choke me. They would spit on me. They would say, I, I hate you. They would make racist terms while they were raping me. But then after a while, when I was being trafficked, I ranked up as a madam. Madam meaning becoming a female trafficker in order to get out of my trafficking situation because it's the thing about these trafficking rings and these are more like the white collar type like an epstein type you can't just say okay now that you know you already used me up i'm gonna go now and i'm gonna walk away it doesn't work that way they still need to use you so you can go and groom other younger girls even when you age out so i want to you're 21 uh-huh. I want to, because um, I can feel what the audience um, might be wondering now as we hear your story unfold, help us understand how it is that you can't get help, that you can't go to your family. Um, help us understand the, I guess, trappedness of it, if you could. Yes, just like me and other girls that typically get trafficked, a lot of us come from broken families. I was abused at home. And so why would I call the family that beat me, that discarded me, that spit me out? And that's the vulnerability. The other thing is in the 90s, nobody held prostitutes. We were known as nothing but prostitutes back then. So if you went to a cop and you were in stiletto heels and you know a cocktail dress and you had blood coming out of your ear, the cop didn't care. They're like, so what do you want? Well, I got B. Well, it was a choice for you. So get get out of here. I mean, I even had cops that bought me and would rape me and beat me. So it's like, what's the use of getting help? I mean, now that we're bringing awareness about human trafficking, we're looking at victims differently than we did 20, 30 years ago. But, you know, when people say, well, why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you get out? Well, it's the same thing with domestic violence. Why are we always asking the victim? When we should be asking, why is anyone not stopping this man beating her or beating him or abusing someone, you know? And so, um, but yeah, back then it was hard to get any help because like I said, human trafficking, the terminology and the understanding did not exist back in the 90s. Thank you. Thanks for helping us understand that. We're going to take a break and come back and hear more of your story. And I want to ask you about surviving all of this and growing into the example of advocacy for others that you are. You've got the Sean Prue Show here on SiriusXM, Canada Talks Channel 167. My special guest, Chong Kim, will be right back. I'm glad you're here. Welcome back to the Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks. Here's Sean Prue. You've got the Sean Prue Show here on SiriusXM Canada Talks Channel 167. She is the author of Broken Silence. Chong Kim is an activist and renowned speaker who has spent close to two decades working to end sexual exploitation and human trafficking. We've just been talking to her about her 
personal firsthand experience as a survivor of rape and as being the victim of human trafficking when she was a young adult. You were just sharing with us, Chong, um, about the horrors of um, finding yourself being trafficked and um, the, the inhumanity of the things that you've gone through. I want to ask you about um, what it was within you that allowed you to survive um, so many years of this. How long did it go on for? And what do you think it was inside you that kept you going? I was trafficked from 1994 through 1996. Then I ranked up as a madam. In 1997, that's when I ran away. But even after that, I still lived a life of prostitution because it was the only way I could survive. Plus, by then, I was already drug addicted because when I was first trafficked, they would actually force feed me through my arm with needles, with morphine, cocaine, heroin, meth. So I got addicted to those type of narcotics. And so I didn't start getting clean until about 2001 when I had my second child. And when I had a boy, that's when I realized I need to be the role model that I never had for my son. And that's when I decided to wake up. And then on top of that, me being a mom, my biggest fear was my son. And so that's when I realized I have to protect him. So in a way, being a survivor almost became an obligation at first, because I felt like I need to speak out in order to protect my son. What I didn't realize, what the universe gave me and blessed me, is that I got to help so many more people than I ever imagined. When I would speak, I get people now that come to me and says, what can I do? How do I protect my children? How do I protect myself? How do I get out of this right? Because I've been in traffic too. And so I'm able to come up with toolkits, workbooks, worksheets, being able to provide a guide for all of these people. And then on top of that, I've been doing um, consulting work with the FBI. I've been doing consulting work with attorneys. But then I started realizing I can't be everywhere. And so that's when I decided to come up with an idea for a dramatic TV series about human trafficking, kind of like Law and Order. Hmm. And so, but what I wanted is I didn't want the law enforcement to be the lead in the series. I wanted a survivor to be the lead. So what I did was I created a series about a female survivor who teaches the FBI how to think like a trafficker. And I've actually written five, um, five sitcom, I mean, not five spinoffs. And I actually have the last two as being men of, of human trafficking. Because people don't think that men can be trafficked or boys can be trafficked. And people don't realize that a lot of boys have been sex trafficked, even in the LGBT community, as well as straight boys are being forced to have sex with women and they're being forced to wear dresses. I have a friend of mine who's a male survivor of human trafficking. And he said when he was five years old, he had to wear a dress. He had to wear lipstick when he would see other men because they would look at him as a girl instead of a boy. So these are things that people need to understand the dynamic and how predators seek out these type of children. So I figured, you know, why not? We're doing all these crime shows about murder and serial killers. Now it's time to wake up America and let them know that human trafficking is like cancer. They don't discriminate. You can be straight, gay, uh, black, white, Asian. They don't care. As long as you have a beating heart, you are for sale. That's all it is to traffickers. So I figured, why not? And while we're doing a TV series, this will be the first TV series where we're actually going to give back some of the proceeds to organizations. And on top of that, between the seasons, between the season breaks, we're all actually going to take some of the cast and crew to go and advocate and speak out and also do lobbying and changing laws so we can protect children further. What have you learned? You've called um, part of the experience a blessing for you. What have you learned about yourself from this experience? I learned that I'm a lot stronger than I ever imagined and that I can help so many people 
in the I don't need a college degree to show people how smart I am. I never graduated from high school. I still don't have a GED, never stepped foot into college. And yet I know a lot more than some of, uh, I met a guy that, you know, came from an Ivy League school, but he didn't even know the depth of human trafficking as much as I did. And he said, he even said to me that he was an expert because he was a PhD. Right. And I said, I'm an expert because I've seen <laughs> these traffickers face to face. And I even told him about the economy and how human trafficking is also considered a national security breach. And he didn't believe me. Well, what do you want people listening to know most about the subject of human trafficking? If they could take what away one thing. And, and, and also, what can the every person do listening? I mean, this is a powerful story. You're an inspiring person. Um, what can people do to help out and, and even know that it's going on in their own backyard? So the first thing I want people to know about human trafficking, when you want to rescue your kids or make sure your kids are not in harm's way, I cannot stress this enough. Parents, you are the key to your children's safety. If you do not spend quality time with your child, someone else is going to fill in the blank. I kid you not. Parents think you need to buy these big time security. You need to buy all these equipments and technology to stay in tune with your kid. No, sometimes a simple basketball game or just one-on-one -on -one having a picnic with your kid, that's what these kids want. And that's what these predators will do instead uh, and take the place of you. So that's one advice, major advice I want people to know. That is going to save your child's life when you spend quality time with your kids. Because if you notice, healthy kids are not at risk. It's the kids that don't have anyone that are high at risk. Two, every 40 seconds, a child in America goes missing. And one in every six child falls into human trafficking. Now think about that, every 40 seconds. And the sad part is Amber Alert will not alert perceived runaway, perceived runaways. We're talking about any kids that are known as an outcast. And so what I want to do is I want to let people know that this is important. And that's why I want to launch my TV series. So that way we can start helping decrease the demand of these children going missing. And when people want to help, just remember, you don't have to take over the world and rescue everybody. Just go to your local nonprofit. And please remember that many survivors can, cannot find a home. A lot of survivors end up being drug addicted. They have credit problems. They have criminal history. They can't get jobs. So if you want to contribute, but you don't have time, if you have a business, hire second chance felons because many of them end up being trafficked when they were younger, but it was never written down. You know, give a survivor who doesn't have good credit, allow them to get a job so they can start building their credit, help them find housing. If you are apartment manager or you have Airbnb, feel free, you know, if you want to help out, be, be able to give a discount to a survivor that needs a home for them and their kids. So, you know, it's something simple like that. You don't have to, you know, go to the UN and be an ambassador and be like, look at me, I'm saving the world. You can still save the world just by in your own backyard. I appreciate you so much. And uh, you're you. an inspiration, Chong. And I thank you for coming on the show. I wish Absolutely. we had more time. I could spend all our talking to you. Would you come <laughs> back sometime and, and, Absolutely. and chat again? Absolutely. Absolutely. The book is Broken Silence. The author is Chong Kim, and it's available wherever you like getting your good books. The Sean Pru Show over and out for another week. I wish you peace and love. Uh, for uh, If you missed any of this interview, just go to SiriusXM On Demand and listen to it anytime. Or for the podcast, visit SeanPru.com, where you can also sign up for my Thought Revolution newsletter. I thank all my guests for their time today. I thank you for listening. And again, I wish you peace and love. Oh, my rebel.